I sat in the pew in a cold sweat. I was nine years old. And I already knew how it would go. I was going to get the call. The call was something you desperately didn't want to get, like lice or the smelly kid in class as your science project partner. There was no getting around the call. The call came and you went, or else. The danger was especially palpable when the visiting missionaries were in town preaching and garnering support. This was called furlough. Furlough was when they got to leave the terrible places the call had ordered them to, places like Zaire, with cat-sized poisonous spiders and tropical fevers and unfashionable hand-me-down clothing, <laughs> and came to the land of refreshment and TV, pop rocks, and running water. My mom was the church secretary, so we always had the furloughed missionaries stay at our house. They took over my bedroom. And I couldn't complain about this because they had really earned it after so many years without wallpaper or holly hobby bedspreads or gum wrapper chains. They were fascinating, but never fun. The missionary kids were always so plain and well-mannered and the missionary mothers quietly void of mascara and lipstick. The missionary dads, um, never handsome, so thin in stature and certain in their course. Their liveliness seemed dulled, but their resolve firm and their fates sealed. Every one of them seemingly prepared to never ever wear a cool pair of jeans or play Atari. They were appalled once when my brother and sister and I got into a rousing game of Twister after dinner. This had followed the weekly viewing of the Dukes of Hazard. I'm certain they prayed for us in great earnest after the trauma had subsided. Who needed to return to Africa when the mission field was so close at hand? <laughs> but they had heard the call and they had listened, God bless them. I knew it was just a matter of time until the call came for me. Of course it would. I was the middle child, I was the rule follower, I was the church secretary's daughter, I was shy and likely to remain single, I took sermon notes and could play the hymn standards on the piano, I had an overdeveloped work ethic and desire to please, and my best friend in 1977 was a black boy. All the signs were there, I was bound for missionary life in Africa. When I thought of it, I cried myself to sleep. I would miss my family so much, and I was so afraid of those spiders. It's probably why I hated the Jonah story so much. Um, it was taught to me by well-intended, by a well-intended, friendly Sunday school teacher named Joyce, like a warning. Listen to that loud voice of God or you will meet a much worse fate than cat-sized spiders and dirt floors with no indoor plumbing in Africa. Just try it. Go ahead. Try to outrun the call. Go ahead and pretend you know what you like. Come up with a plan, pick a direction, put some effort in. You just wait and see. 
because the G-man is watching you. And just the very second you think you've got that plan lined up, wham, here comes the call. God will stone you with it, hit you upside the head, sit you on your ass, ignore it, pretend it was an unlucky coincidence, yeah, nice try. Here comes the windstorm and some wild beast. You think for a second that the God of the flood and the plagues and the slaughter of the firstborn can't track you down, you little thing? You think this is a challenge? You think God gives a crap about your fears or desires? You think those flicker any light on God's big world dominion switchboard? How puny and selfish you are. You'll hear the call, all right, and you'll listen and be grateful. You better. Over time, the story would change. For a long while, it just went away. I think I might have left it in the box in my parents' basement with my third-grade poems and my Valentine to Bryce Narverson. Or maybe it got lost. Maybe on that college road trip when I abandoned the anger God somewhere in the desert where he sat throwing a big, noisy temper tantrum demanding to be let back in the car. For decades, I really haven't noticed the story missing. At some point, I stopped believing in the call and so stopped fearing it. I maybe even hope for some version of it actually to be true, like it might be nice if all the choices had some divine input, like it might be useful if the voice of God was ever something more than a muffled suggestion. But mostly, I just stopped believing the call was anything more than nature or inclination or happenstance or random combinations of DNA or intellectual justifications or wishful thinking. Despite all the fears, it seemed, the call never came. Or if it came I, and I missed it, the anger God had already given up. The old tricks weren't working anymore, I don't know. I asked my atheist brother about this story, and he grew up with me, equally sure of the call, but a little more determined to defy it. His is a bit of psycho-spiritual take, something like Jonah's self-god, the unconscious, willed for him to go to Nineveh. He chose to run from the very real full power of nature and toppled back from the deck of the ship in the resulting choppy seas. He was swallowed by the inhabitants of the waters, the vibrancy of the unconscious, into stillness, like depression, inaction. He emerged repentant, uh, modernly resolved, actualized, changed, integrated. He proceeded to Nineveh, though today he may have found several acceptable destinations. Fair enough. I have my own nine-year-old now, I asked her what she thought of this story, story of Jonah and the whale. She said she liked it, thinking about how inside that big fish there was maybe a really cool hotel and a restaurant. <laughs> she has maybe been um, Netflixing too many Nickelodeon shows or attending Sunday school at the House of Mercy for too long. To be fair, she is quite the introvert. 
the kind of person for whom there are much worse realities than landing yourself in a quiet, warm, hidden spot, away from the demands and social constructs a day can hold, no matter whose stomach acid you may be sitting in. But she likes this story, huh? She asked if I have ever been inside a whale. I said, I, I don't think so. Had she? She said she didn't think so, but it sounded cozy. This led to a conversation about her time in my belly, warm and protected and contemplating. We both equate the two things somehow. That's not the Jonah story I know. Have I failed her, I wonder, not giving her any sense of spiritual or emotional or physical doom? Have I spoiled her in this way? Does she have no sense of spiritual obligation? Can she not imagine a call to anything other than her own comfort and entertainment? I don't know. <clears throat> I open my Bible to the book of Jonah, which I can only locate in its housing between Obadiah and Micah by singing that song they taught me in my early years about the books of the Bible. Around the same time, they accidentally taught me that God was out to prove me wrong. For the first time as a grown-up, I read the story of Jonah. If you haven't read it lately, a lot of Old Testamenty drama happens in three pages. There's a commission and a fleeing, some calamity, raging seas, desperate calls out to various gods. There's the honing in on the guy to blame for the calamity. There's the human sacrifice of the angry gods, a tossing into the sea. There's some sudden thanksgiving, some proclamation. A whole city changes from regular clothes into sackcloth. There's a king sitting in some ashes. There's repentance, anger. God appoints a worm to attack a bush. And then it ends really abruptly with a grammatically suspect question. I think to myself, what the hell? I kind of gaze over these Old Testament stories when I encounter them. They often feel like such missed literary opportunities to me. Like, couldn't we delve a little more deeply into the claustrophobic elements involved in a story about a guy trapped inside another creature? Did he not try to crawl his way claw his way out? Did it not reek something fierce in that belly? Like other rotting fish, wasn't it dark? How could he even know he was in the belly of a whale? I don't think I would have known that. Couldn't we explore a little more about the terrible human moments that most certainly took place on the boat as all the sailor dudes decided to throw a guy overboard in order to satiate the gods they so feared? Couldn't we expend a little more creative effort on the tumbling into the dark and raging sea, the gasping for air, and the powerlessness over the endless blackness? Couldn't we hear a bit more detail about the spewing out on the dry land that couldn't have been pretty. I have never spewed anything with much elegance. For Pete's sake, 
Give me something I can take home with me. And really, when was the last time you used the word reproved? This is the point at which I email my pastor friend and say, can you tell me how you theologically read this story? He tells me he can, but it's too long for an email, so I should call him. I feel like responding, this is a really dumb story, totally not worthy of a phone conversation, let alone a feast or a whole Sunday of time and thought. I make myself read it one more time before slamming the story closed for good. And I see the one still word in the whole melodramatic mess. Provided. The Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah. Provided. That does not sound like the right word for a rascally, vengeful deity. Sounds more like care. There is a moment of elation as I think, Joyce was wrong, it wasn't a punishment, it was a rescue. Jonah went down, deep down in the water, so dark he couldn't have possibly known what was there. He must have known it was done, his time had come. He was getting what he deserved for running from the call. But then the big fish was waiting for him at the bottom. It says it right there, verse 17. The Lord provided the fish belly, a place no one else knew about. Little solitude, an incubation, an alternative to the sharks. A sanctuary. A couple of days to sit and think before hitting dry land. The whale heard the call. 